So between the two of us, are you Timon or Pumbaa? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I want to... S- I would like to be Timon. Okay, you can be Timon. It's fine. But I'm probably Puma. <laughs> I'm the brains of the operation. <laughs> totally. <laughs> okay. Wait, so th- that means I'm the one actually getting in drag and doing the hula then. Do you have a problem with that? Um, Not if you don't. Rock out, man. Well, I'm Garrett McQueen in my boy clothes today. And I'm Scott Blankenship <laughs> wearing what was at the foot of the bed when I got up today. <laughs> And this is Triloquy, true and real stories from the fringes of classical music. It's Red Letter Day, Garrett. So what's the big news? I have now seen both the Lion King original. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and the Lion King live action. Oh, you, you, Yeah, uh, you and I went to go see Beyonce featuring the Lion King. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was beautiful. Oh, mm-hmm. my goodness. I mean, you don't have the same nostalgia about it that I would. <laughs> but 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 hopefully you found something between the two movies, the two adaptations that you appreciated. I did. I did. Um the live action one, John Favreau's version that's out now spoke to me more mm-hmm. than the uh animated one. And I think that just m- must be because I miss that whole Disney era. Sure. When did it come out? When was I, I think that was 94. Okay, so a 24-year-old is probably not going to go and seek that out. Sure, you know, yeah. Unless they have kids, you know, right. I, and I didn't. But, um, you know, because it happened with Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, too. Right. Because I watch the original one with Gene, you know, and the new one just did not measure up. I had no use for it. So you, What you're making me think about is nostalgia uh, connected to music and maybe even specifically classical music, how most people don't have that... I have a bit of that nostalgia because, you know, classical music has been a part of, of my life uh, forever. But but maybe that's one of the, the challenges of classical music is, is really fighting against the lack of nostalgia or lack of background so many people have in, in that. Well, we've also talked a lot about how sometimes when you hear a piece for the first time and you're moved by it, that recording becomes the benchmark. Yeah. Okay, so for me, watching Gene Wilder do Willy Wonka... Nobody else can do Willy Wonka. Right. And there's music in that. Yeah. And I guess you could say the same about the two Lion Kings because the the Be Prepared in the original mm. is much better mm-hmm. than in the I thought so too. In the remake. But let, what'd you say you didn't think maybe they didn't want to mess with it? Yeah, because it's just it's up there as one of those classics. You know, yeah. D- Disney doesn't have that many uh, villain songs like that sound like that. There's that, there's poor unfortunate souls, there's I, I can't really think of too many other ones nor can i um but i will tell you there was the the part that moved me in the lion king was when simba finally talked to the stars and heard his father's voice yeah because um and even just thinking about it now i kind of get uh just a little i can feel my throat tighten up a little bit (laughs) thinking about it because there he had that feeling of uncertainty that he was to take up this mantle yeah and that was a big example that was set out by his father right and that's the sort of relationship that i have with my dad now is that i have such reverence we don't always agree sure but i have such reverence for the choices that he made that got his family where we are uh largely successful and and largely positive um, family interaction that we have and um, to think about the day that I might one day um, step into those shoes 
it, you know, it, it fills me with uncertainty. And so I was, uh, I could really key into that moment, that particular scene. Have you and your dad had the conversation that Simba and Mufasa had about, you know, when, when Simba tells, <laughs> my throat is getting tight, when, when Simba asks his father and and we're going to be friends forever, right? And that's when Mufasa goes into the whole, well, you know, I'm not going to be here I'm forever, be here. but I'll always be with you. And yeah, you know, that that sort of has has that been a, a conversation between the two of you? Dad is very reluctant to get too deep in emotion, you know, because that's the time and place he's from. Sure. And he has started writing things in cards. You know, like my mom died in 94 and he's been writing stuff like you already got through the hard one. Yeah. He's like, when I go, you know, it's it's going to be much easier on you. Right. And I got to call the the BS flag on that. Sure. Because uh, he's one of my closest friends. That's really sweet. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. Uh, I, I envy that. Um, I have a relationship with my dad, not a terribly close one. Um, I mean, and he's around. I don't want to, you know, my parents are still married and everything, but I, I was just, you know, the the black sheep enough mm-hmm. to just kind of be on the outside of, you know, the, be, I, I'm the black sheep of the family in many ways. So Same here. But all I can say is keep the door open because, yeah. you know, there there's going to come a moment when that relationship will start. You'll see it. I'm sure. Okay. Well, and you know, the, the idea of guidance and mentorship and advice from those who are, are older is kind of the theme of, uh, of my interview, uh, portion today. So I spoke with, um, a, I hate to call him a kid, you know, a young man named yeah. David Norville. He is, um, an oboist, a senior at the uh, New England, uh, conservatory of music, NEC, and um, and he talks a lot about the people who have influenced him, some uh, musical, including um, his his teacher, Mr. Farillo, uh, over there in Boston. Um, one of my uh, former teachers and his current um, mentor, Lacolian Washington, as well as uh, some of his non-musical mentors. So in this conversation, we bring up um, Joe Button, one of his uh, podcast heroes, uh, the the guy that inspired him to start his own podcast for and for all intents and purposes, you know, one of the people that um you know, inspired me to begin Triloquy, you know, yeah. he talks about, uh, Jay-Z, AKA Hove or, or Hova <laughs> as a, uh, as, as a point of inspiration. Um, yeah, he, he, he says some really poignant things in this conversation. Um, and before we jump into it, Scott, I, I would love to touch on one, uh, you'll hear him, uh, say, I know myself and I know what I want for my world. Um, that's, that's a concept that I didn't even have or I couldn't have even had as a 20 year old thinking about building your world. You know, I was thinking more about, you know, in my most responsible moments, I was thinking more about making it past this test or making it past this jury or this performance, but not creating my own world. You know, can you, can you speak to that at all? Well, what were you thinking about as a 20 year old? (laughs) How am I going to get my car insurance paid this month? Okay. Good for you. I was driving around with no car insurance. (laughs) I have have it now. I have it now. (laughs) No, all all I'm saying is that, um, you know, he's got a perspective that, not a lot of young people have, let alone within this world of classical music. Gives you some hope for the future, doesn't it? The kids are all right. Yeah. I, I really think that um, 
there, there's many things that he says throughout your conversation that you should, you know, write down and and put it on a coffee mug or mm-hmm. or a bookmark or something. You yeah. know, he's if nothing else, he's going to come up with a lot of inspirational phrases. Yeah. Well, how about we jump in uh, to that conversation? Uh, where where uh, we'll start today is um, David kind of recounting how he met my former teacher, his current mentor, Lacoli in Washington, and 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 what happened after that. We were we were connected through uh, my former teacher Lacoli, and why don't you tell me a little about a little bit about how you got connected to him? I got connected to Lacolian through Sphinx, so I went to um, the, the Sphinx Connect SphinxCon um, in February for the first time. I got a fellowship to go, uh, so I went out to Detroit, and one of the seminars I went to was called the Daily Bread. And mm-hmm. me being from the South, and me being uh, raised in the Church of Christ, it's one of the things that you know that name stuck out to me. Um, but also, it kind of had like the the name had a ring of like money to it, you know. I've always kind of been thinking about how ways to monetize my skills, so I was thinking that might be the one I wanted to go to. So I went to the Daily Bread, and um, the calling was there. He was the moderator, um, and his story was very much so similar to mine. And the way he spoke and the way he held himself kind of resonated within me. And I was thinking, man, I really wanted to to talk to this guy, to meet this guy. There's a Q and A session. Um, towards the end of the talk and I wanted to ask him along with uh, the rest of the people on the panel what their experiences were with mentors because here uh, in Boston one of the things that I've been looking for a lot um, is kind of someone to look to for kind of guidance or direction or someone to kind of model maybe my own plans after a little bit you know unfortunately I ran out of time um, but I went to him directly after seminar and I went right up to him and I saw that he's from Boston too not from Boston but he's working in Boston right right um, and I said you know I really want to ask you these questions um, I showed him my name tag and my name tag said New England Conservatory um, and I was like I really want to meet you he said I remember he said something like you were meant to meet me this day he said something so powerful <laughs> like that he said, this was meant to happen this day take my name down contact me and when we get back to Boston I'll take you out to lunch and we'll talk wow so, yeah, it was it was it was a great time. It was a very powerful time. At the SphinxCon, um, you know, one of the big uh, one of the big focuses being an entrepreneur, and as you mentioned, uh, monetizing uh, yourself. Where um, where do you plan to go other than music? Because it sounds like you know becoming an orchestral oboist isn't you know what you're planning on doing at this point. Well, I have a few ideas, you know, and I've had a few leads in the last couple months. I mean, first off, Sphinx really inspired me to really think that, uh, first off, it really dared me to, to, to aspire, right? It really yeah. let me know that, wow, there's so many other routes that you can take, and there are many different careers you can build around your instrument, you know? Um, me being an oboist, you know, a lot of people think that uh, there's only one, one or two things you can do. You can either teach oboe or go in an orchestra and play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the last few months, I've been kind of trying to build my skills uh, and, and take on um, a sort of entrepreneurial mindset. So one of the things I've come to my biggest leads is I kind of want a career um, around centered around media production. Um, so first off, I want to I'm in the, I'm in the process of conceptualizing and producing a, a podcast series. Um, and actually tomorrow I'm going to find out from. Uh, this this organization called National Art Strategies. They have this fellowship called Creative Community Fellows of New England, um, and I'm going to find out tomorrow because I was a finalist for that, oh, wow. for that fellowship. So I find out tomorrow if I actually get the fellowship or not. 
Um, regardless if I get the fellowship or not, I'm still going to go forward and produce this um, this podcast series. Along with that, I want to um, I want to create a business model around a performance series too, and be able to perform and tour around the country. Um, one of my biggest aims is to be an independent artist. Yeah, because uh, because to me that means so much. And you know, one of my biggest inspirations um, is Jay Z, um, and consequently Nipsey Hussle too. Yeah. And so I, I yeah. was thinking about you know building my career as an independent artist, um, being able to connect with people at my same level who have certain skills and skills that complement my skills, and us build our career together. You know? Yeah, yeah. You know, anyone um, who listens to um, this podcast or, or knows me personally knows that I'm a huge um, Beyonce fan. But you know, when you put Beyonce next to Hove, you have these <laughs> these two musicians who who really carved their way and made their way. You know, it's it's what I call freedom. And um, right. you know, and and the closer um, my relationship with um, you know, the closer I've gotten to Beyonce's music and her journey. You know, since I was a teenager. Of course, you know, um, learning and listening to Jay-Z uh, is a huge part of that. So, yeah, shout out to both of them. I mean, um, what, what they're doing for um, for blackness is so important. What they're doing uh, as far as giving an example of what it really means to work for yourself and do your own thing. It, it's it's really phenomenal. They are um, they are so um, impactful. But I know um, we, we spoke before. And um, you also told me that you are a fan of the Joe Button podcast, and and he's actually my biggest inspiration. That that's who I go to. Definitely, very much so. Joe has been a huge, huge inspiration uh, for me in the last maybe year and a half. I'm actually seeing him on the thirty first. He's coming to Boston the thirty first. I know. I'm so jealous. Here, and I can't wait to have. I think I may be in the fourth row from the stage. Gonna be so close. Hopefully, I can say something to him. Hopefully, I can shake his hand, just meet him or something. Because he's been a huge inspiration for me. He's part of the reason why I wanna. Well, he's almost the sole reason why I'm, I was inspired to uh, create my own podcast series too. Um, and just thinking about Joe, him being so unapologetically forward and blunt, and his ability to analyze the situation, deconstruct it, and convey that same situation. Uh, with just such eloquence, but also like uh, rawness at the or, same time. Yeah, rawness, <laughs> that is it. Definitely speaks to me. You know, uh, my some of my friends will just know that I'm. My, some of my friends know that I'm very, very much type to debate and argue and and just go on a tangent about some philosophical thing that somehow relates to the current state of where we are and whatever conversation we're talking about. And that kind of stuff speaks to me, and it just gets me going like energy wise, and it really, really. Uh, Really, really inspires me. Love Joe. Love Joe so much. Yeah, yeah. Shout, shout out to Joe, Rory, Mall, uh, oh, <laughs> Parks, right. Erickson. You know, I was actually uh, I had the pleasure of being a guest on uh, Savon's podcast. Need to know. I don't know if you listened to that one. I heard that. Yeah, I heard that episode. It was like almost three hours long, but I heard all of it. It was great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was a real pleasure. So definitely shout out to uh, Savon and and Stephen Alex as well. Um, you know, so so already we've laid out Hove, uh, Beyonce, Joe Button, and all those people as as folks who've inspired us and been an important uh, part of, of what we do. What does it mean to you that there aren't all that many, you know, black folk in classical music for us to look up to? You know, because people ask me all the time, you know, who, who's, who's, who are your role models? Who, who are your musician role models? And I always have to go outside of classical music to, to name names. Mm-hmm. 
I always thought uh, it was a little weird that every time I thought of my own role models, I wasn't naming whoever was is principal cello in Chicago, or, right? Or Leonard Bernstein or something like that. Um, to me, to not have all of those role models in classical music to look to sometimes feels isolating. Um, for the most part, it does feel isolating. I think there are a lot of negative associations, at least right now, that go along with it for me. Um, there's there's always understanding that you know in the black community, one of the biggest things holding us back, one of the biggest one of the biggest hindrances, is literally uh, that the inability to access information, just not knowing things. You know, um, there's this whole information economy out there, and some people are left out of that. And so I feel like because there's a lack of you know, sometimes leadership or lack of role models. I feel like there's a lack of knowing what can I do, you know? Yes. Yeah. At this age, you know, I'm 20. Uh, I'm about to turn 21 in July. I'm about to go into my senior year uh, at the New England Conservatory. There's a sense of personal agency uh, that is more pressing and more pressing, you know, and it's an interesting yeah. place to be in because four years ago, I had to raise my hand and ask to go to the bathroom. And four years from now, you know, I need, I'm, I need to be in a place where I'm really making my decisions for myself. And right, so that means right now I have to know what do I want to do. But before I can even ask what do I want to do, I have to know what can I do, you know. And you know, that requires me to look to what other people have been doing and, and what models have been laid out to me and, and what the paths are there. But at the same time, you know, there is some consolation because because those paths aren't there. I, that means I can become a pathfinder. That means yeah. I can become my own leader. I can just lay out something, you know, because it's not there. Um, so, so before before we sort of explore uh, what lies ahead for you, let let's lay the groundwork. So, tell me the story um, that led you to playing the oboe and 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 being a student at NEC. Yeah, born in Florida. Um, I was born into a West Indian household. My mom is from Guyana. Um, that's a country in South America, Eastern yeah. Venezuela. Yeah. Um, it's geographically not part of the Caribbean, but culturally very much so is. And so, you know, I was kind of brought up with a very strong work ethic. Um, I was brought up with the understanding that if you, you can put your hands on something and mesh it and mold it to what you want it to be, but you have to put your hands on it first and you have yeah. to put that work in first. Um, um, you know, we, we, we kind of grew up like not in the best uh, circumstances, you know, my mom moved here to, to the United States when she was like 20. Um, she was like a single parent, you know, that, that, that whole kind of stereotypical kind of background, you know? Yeah. Um, my brother, so when it comes to music, my brother started playing flute. He's four years older than me. He started playing flute when he got to sixth grade. Mm. Um, I was in fourth grade. At the, I mean, I was in second grade at the time. He started playing flute and uh, he loved it. And, you know, thinking back, I think for him, flute was an escape from the circumstances. Flute was a means to an end. You know, flute brought him to places around the world that we otherwise wouldn't yeah. have gone, you know. Uh, and I, I love my older brother, you know, and I always competed with him ever since we were little. We always used to play video games together, and I always want to win. You always want to race. I always want to, let's, Ryan, let's go get on bikes and race. And some, most times I would lose, but I would nevertheless love the competition. I always love to challenge him. So when I got to sixth grade, I also wanted to kind of join that game of music, um, get involved with another, in another thing to be able to compete with him, you know. Also, part of the reason I joined the band was, you know, uh, my brother went to Disney World when he was in sixth grade, and he went to Disney World with the band. 
And so in my head, like the rationale was, maybe if I join band, I can go to Disney World too. <laughs> that's precious. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Disney World, but we went to Bush Gardens. Okay. Bush Gardens like four times, and uh, that was a great. That was really great. And we went to go. We got to go with the band. Uh, that's a band's uh, school trip. Um, so that was really cool. But I joined the game of music uh, with my brother, and I think both of us had a just kind of like a sort of taking to it. Um, and I think we had a, a, just a kind of like a natural talent. No one else in the family is um, musical. But okay. I think part of it was at home, because my mom was gone frequently. We didn't have much else to do, you know. And um, gone yeah. frequently, I guess, working all the time. Right? At work, yeah, yeah. She worked all the time, you know, sometimes overnight. So we wouldn't have much else to do. You know, we'd come home from school around 2 or 3 p.m. or maybe 4 p.m. Uh, in in when we were in middle school. Mm-hmm. But we'd come home and just, just kind of just practice, you know, practice. My brother took off quick with um, music. He'd be going to these festivals in, in middle school and high school. And he attended the Interlochen Arts Academy. Um, okay, yeah, up in Florida, uh, in uh, Michigan. Yeah, junior and senior year, he went to Interlochen, you know. Uh, my mom wanted the same thing for me. Um, and so she kind of she kind of pushed me and pushed me to practice and practice and do well. And I eventually was able to go to Interlochen as well. And there I was able to study with this man named Daniel Stolper, who really, really changed my whole kind of understanding of how to play oboe and how to approach the instrument and introduced me to so many different things musically. Um, and I really feel like I just leveled up and leveled up at Interlochen. It was a really great time. And I, I was able to participate in so many different forms of art and different mediums of art, too. You know, I think that was one of the most important things at Interlochen. I was playing music. I was also playing improvisatory music with friends. Um, I, would, I would write poetry and read at coffee houses. I was acting in, in short films because it was a school for all arts. You know, they had video motion yeah. arts and dance and theater and all these things too. Um, and so I was able to kind of participate in all these different things and it was so great. Um, uh, one, we had a master class, I think. We had a master class one day at Interlock and I think it was my senior year. November and this man named John Farillo who you, you might yeah, know his name of course um, yeah. he's one of the best oboists I think in the world um, yeah. he's principal of Boston Symphony Orchestra he came and I played uh, Easter Oratorio the solo from the Easter Oratorio mm-hmm. um, the oboe solo and I played it for him and I think he liked it I think he liked it he had a lot of great things to say and I had this really strange but really cool genuine connection with him um, and after the, after the, the master class, he asked me if I was applying to the New England Conservatory, and I said no. I said no because at the time I wasn't. You know, senior year I was planning to apply to Indiana and Oberlin and schools that I thought that I would get uh, more scholarship from because sure. NEC is is notorious for not giving a lot of uh, aid. You know. Yeah. Um, so I told him no, and he says you should think about applying because um, I think you'd like it at the school, and I'd love to have you. And so that was very, very inspiring, not only because he said that, but because of the connection I had with him. So I applied, um, and fortunately I got in, and it was a good amount of scholarship too. Uh, so I've been at NEC for about three years. Um, I just finished my junior year, and I'm in Boston, and I've kind of just, I got kind of got to Boston and like spread my roots, you know, and kind of yeah. got my roots deep and did my best to kind of cultivate my skills, you know. I've, I've, I've been learning a lot about the world around me, but also about myself too. Oh, of and, course, yeah. And and so what's great about that um, is that I, kn- I feel more confident within me and I see the world more positively, you know. But also it, within that, 
because I know myself, I know what I want from my world. And yeah. so that's been leading me to pursue options, uh, career options that aren't specifically uh, in the orchestral realm. Um, so I'm working with things around that kind of, for example, I have been volunteering with this local youth orchestra called the Roxbury Youth Orchestra. Okay. Um, Ro- Roxbury is a, is a notably predominantly uh, black uh, community in, in the suburb of, of Boston. Yeah. Um, and there's this man named David France who's the founder of the orchestra. Um, and the whole thing is kind of like uh, ha- help us build an orchestra in the hood. And so it's kind of teaching kind of like, like you know, classical music um, to young inner city kids and helping them build, um, you know, sort of life skills and kind of uh, giving them sort of like moral, moral and emotional support through classical music. Um, and so that's one of the things I've been doing. That, that's that's really that. incredible. Yeah, and it's thank you, and it's been a, it's really it's been a great time. You know, I'm learning a lot about that too. You're 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 telling me your story. Uh, sort of reminded me of something. You know, we we, we began this chat by kind of talking about you know some of our other uh, media role models or people we pay attention to. When you mentioned that you were um, of West Indian descent, you have me thinking about um, folks like um, Kid Fury from The Read and Jesus Nice, of course, from Jesus mm-hmm. Amaro, and yeah. you know, and they they talk a lot about their West Indian upbringing and how in their households you know, the expectation was to, you know, get a job, get something that is going to make you money. I guess I'm a little, um, you know, understanding those tropes, those stereotypes, I'm a little surprised that um, your mother pushed you and your brother toward music in, in, in the way that she did. It was, it's, it's something that I haven't even fully wrapped my mind around, you know. Um, I think one of the biggest things that she was, she wants us to do things that, make us happy you know yeah and one of the biggest things she always says and always always said is like when she was younger she didn't know what she wanted to do um she was never frequently told that she was good at doing anything yeah and so no one and also no one never pushed her to do anything either she never knew what it felt like to have a dream you know and that's something she always kind of resents and there's a sort of negative association there um she definitely feels the type of way about it and I think because of that, that's part of the reason why she's always pushed us to use our skills and use the things that we're good at and pursue those things, too. Uh, because yeah. she knows what it's like to be in a position to not have a skill or to be told that she's not good at something or to not even have that sort of dream and not have that passion to move towards something. You know, she OK, I, I, I'll be completely honest. Sometimes she's kind of like, all right, when are you going to get a job? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know? But I, I tell her, like, Mom, I got a plan. I got a plan. I'm working these angles right now. I'm trying to do these certain things. Um, I'm monetizing my skills to the best of my ability, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think I mean it's been it's been a very difficult process, but I think in the end, we will both the both all of us will agree it's, it'll be a very beautiful thing that we've done. You know? Yeah, yeah, and you know, and sometimes you know the the path just doesn't. Even though the path isn't clear, it doesn't mean the path isn't there. I talk about my story all the time. You know, I, I was going to be a music teacher, and then I actually ended up, you know, winning auditions and playing with orchestras, and you know that turned into radio and and media and and all that sort of thing. And you know, it's 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 been a bumpy ride, but um, I I think that's sort of par for the course when it comes to the arts, especially music, you know? Mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest things I've been thinking about, um, because, you know, you tell someone that you're a musician or you're, you're in classical music, and the first thing you think, oh, that's risky. 
But yeah. I mean, you know, I've also been learning about like uh, finance and, and business and, you know, education is an investment, you know, and one of the things that you do when you're investing is you minimize and diversify your risk. Yeah. You know? and so <laughs> wow. One of the things I've been thinking about is, like I've been saying, monetizing my skills. So one of my plans is to, I'm working towards getting an economics degree after uh, NEC uh, because I definitely want to be an entrepreneur. I want to work for myself. Um, my end goal is freedom. My end goal is I decided what I want to do at a certain point in time. You know, um, that kind of stuff inspires me. Um, and I don't, I don't, I think, you know, being at classical music, being classical music is difficult. And I think it's risky. But I don't think it's as risky as people think. You know, I think there are ways to go about it. Um, and I think the risk and like the pitfalls are that of the institution, not really of the types of people. Because I go to school with just amazingly creative, imaginative, hardworking people. You know, right, I don't of course. think I don't think that if it if they if it was really that risky, uh, these really intelligent people would be going through this, you know, or going into this like that. Um, but I mean, yeah, there there I mean there are pitfalls, and there are things that I think you know, uh, my school could be doing, or 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 conservatories could be doing, you know. Uh, to kind well, of offset that. Well, on, on that topic, what do your uh, classmates or maybe even some of your uh, teachers think about the, the plan you have? Because I'm sure um, you have classmates just in the practice room really beating the block or, or, or beating the metronome, so to speak, trying to you know prepare to win that audition. What, what, what do they think of, of what you're doing? Well, that's the thing. Um, I haven't been totally vocal. I mean, firstly, I'm not a person who kind of um, talks a lot about like my plans or what I'm doing or what I've done and things like that. I kind of just silently work and let the work show for itself. Yeah. Um, but I've spoken to, I've spoken, I've kept this kind of quiet, my plans. I kept it very, very quiet. I've spoken to a few people. Um, and generally what they think is that, um, well, I mean, I, on some hands, I, from the vibes I get, I feel like some people think I'm selling out some people think I'm like sort of trying to quit and go a different route or I'm not kind of meant to deal with the pressures of an orchestral audition um, but some people are very supportive and some people think like you know some people say things like you know if there's one person who can do it Dave you can do it you know um, I really I really hate that idea that um, you know the, the classically trained musician who does not end up you know, only playing in an orchestra or whatever has has sold out. You know, and and I, I get a little defensive on that topic. You know, considering my uh, the the way my career has has played out because I just consider myself a little more dynamic than than the person who only you know uh, you know my biggest critique of classical musicians is that the instrument you play becomes your principal uh, personality trait, and I don't think that should be the case. Yeah. No shade to anybody out there, you know, anybody that's, listening, but... That's truth. I definitely hear that. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the reason why I keep it so quiet, you know. Um, there, One of my biggest fears is that I say something about this to um, one of my teachers, you know, and they sort of give up on me and stop dedicating as much time to me. Mm. The thing is, though, one of the amazing things about my teacher is that um, he implores that people get educations, people pursue other things, people trust in the process and go about things the way they think is right. Yeah. Uh, and th and this is Mr. Farillo, right? It's Mr. Farillo. And, yeah. and he was on the audition trail for 10 years. And within that time, he moved from state to state, teaching at different universities, moving his uh, wife and kid around. 
um, just trying to stay afloat, still trying to play uh, oboe, because that's really what he loves. The other day, um, I think it was a few months ago, he asked me what my plans were um, after I graduate and get my bachelor's. And for some reason, I had a feeling he was going to ask me that that day. Mm. And I told him straight up, I said, after uh, I graduate here, one of my plans is to go into economics, get an economics degree, because I want to understand you know, more things about the business world. I want to understand finance. I want to understand how money moves. Um, and I, I didn't tell him everything about being an entrepreneur, but I told him that I wanted to get an economics degree. Um, and he was completely supportive. And it was really surprising. It, it, I was taken aback a bit. Um, he was saying, you know, it's really, it's really great. People want to go on and, and, you know, kind of diversify or make their education more well-rounded. And he was telling me that his own daughter, who also plays oboe and who's in the uh, Boston Symphony, uh, is just now getting a poli-sci degree. You know? his, his daughter is already in the uh, Boston Symphony? Yeah, she's either, um, she's either a sub. I think she's actually technically in the Boston Symphony. Okay, um, okay, okay. As of, like, maybe a month or two ago. Um but she got a poli-sci degree and like a few other degrees too, along with her oboe degree. Um, so that was cool. And it felt good to have someone that, like that in my corner not be completely against me because of the plans I have, you know? Yeah. Um, I think, I don't know, people have their own ways of doing things. I think, you know, part of the culture is that there's a certain amount of like feeling of, a, of like being a rock star or a certain type of glamour mm-hmm. that comes along with being, having an orchestra job. But the question is always, you know, what is the reality of the job market? What is having a job really like? And is it really like being a rock star? Is it really like what you think it would be like? Um, and is this what your calling is? You know, everyone's looking for a stage, um, but everyone, some different people are looking for different types of stages. Right, some a different people, platform. Their stage yeah. is uh, being a professor. For some people, they want to be the sole person on stage. Some people want to play an ensemble. You know, um, some people their stage is 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 an uh, sort of unconventional educational setting, you know. Um, and while you're still piecing things together, you, you do know that the orchestral stage is not the stage that you're totally interested in right now. Right now, no, it's not the sole stage. Um, yeah. I think part of it, I mean, you know, I, I do feel connection to the music at times, you know. Um, but there's definitely a difference between, if you're looking at it from more like a, like a music business standpoint, there's, there's a difference between, like, you know, entertainment and the culture, you know what I'm saying, that the entertainment caters to the whims of what, like the technical whims of whatever the demographic is, you know, but the culture comes along with like the actual history and tradition. You know? Right. One of my problems is, you know, even from, uh, you know, I guess maybe junior year on, I never really felt like I was part of the orchestra, even now. It's, it's an interesting take, but I feel like, you know, it's such a privilege to be some a person of color you know a person of color within especially a, a person of african descent you know yeah in the orchestra but at times i feel as though like these uh different uh, nonprofit organizations that have helped us so greatly it's almost like sending sleeper agents you know right. sending right. sleeper agents into this you know regime and there's only a few of us and sometimes i kind of turn around and think man we're, we're in greater numbers outside of the institution why don't we use our strength in numbers in in kind of shift the the market to a different place or shift the scene to a different place you know it, we can play it's classical music but we can play classical music somewhere else you know? right right exactly you know it, it, it's so incredible hearing you talk about this um because of all the different people that uh, i've interviewed uh, so far for this podcast everyone who is black 
um, kind of leads me to this part of the conversation uh, as far as like, you know, joint economics or, or, or power and numbers and all of that. Um, just, just maybe even just as an aside, what do you say to the person that says, well, why is everything about race? Why does it always boil back to race when, um, when black people talk about classical music? I mean, man, uh, it's, it's such a, such a large question. And the first thing I would say is that anything that has to do with money is going to boil back to race. Anything that has to do with um, like culture or socioeconomic status can boil back to race because race, like if you're talking about racism or sexism or homophobia, they're all mechanisms of capitalism, you know? And so a lot of that stuff's gonna boil back to race. That'll be the first thing that I said. Um, but things gonna boil back to race because, I mean, it's, it's, there's a more visceral connection, at least personally speaking, I feel a more visceral connection to a certain type of music depending on who's playing it. When I went to Sphinx, that was the first time I went to Sphinx, and when I heard the Sphinx Orchestra, that was the most beautiful classical music I've ever heard, ever. And it's because I look on stage and I can see Joseph Conyers, um, I can see Jess McJunkins, uh, I saw... Yeah, shout out to them, yeah. I saw David France, uh, I saw uh, Damari McGill, people yep. like that on stage, and it was very, 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 very powerful connection, you know. Um, but I mean, th there's always the understanding of, you know, the intrinsic bias, uh, feeling of isolation, um, and one of the things I actually started thinking about my junior year is after I got I started playing so many concerts in Interlochen, I would look into the audience, you know, while on stage, in mid-concert, and look into the audience to see who was out there, you know. I wouldn't see anyone who looked like me. Yeah. I wouldn't feel like I'm, I was adding to the culture. Whose culture am I adding to when I'm, like, kind of supporting the institution? I would look at the, the chairs and look at the architecture of the, of the auditorium, and I, I would start thinking, who paid for this? Yeah. And what do they look like? Where are they from? You know, I mean, you know, I wrote, I wrote a paper about, you know, classical music being one, being one of the last vertices of white power that has been unchallenged. Ooh, you know, wow, it's yes. A, it's a foothold of white power that has been unchallenged. And I think because of that, because of this Euro-American, you know, space that has been created, it's also going to boil back to, back to race, you know. If you, if you walk downtown by any seat, you'll see... Um, you'll see New England Conservatory, Jordan Hall building, you'll see um, Boston Symphony on the next block. The architecture is neo-Renaissance, you know, European architecture. They're creating this whole space and this whole block that is, is, is you know, referential of, of Europe. Yeah. You know, what does it mean to see a black body in that space? What does it mean to go into Jordan Hall, turn right, go around the corner, and see a big statue of Beethoven, you know, and see Mahler on the wall? They're creating a different space that has these, you know, unconscious, these sort of um, implied references, you know. And so these physical representations of power mean something. And so when another another person who, who doesn't really coincide with that, meant that representation, it enters that space, it means something. And, you know, it's quite powerful. And that's, that's why it's powerful to have, you know, black people in orchestra and have organizations like Sphinx and these, like, pipeline programs. But at the same time, you know, it's going to be, it's, because it's significant, it, there are always going to be positive, negative, negative implications and repercussions right. too. Right. Um, so it's going to boil, down, boil back down to race because it's so, in, I think, I mean, I think it's so intrinsically rooted into what we understand it to be, you know, what we understand, you know, classical music to be or the culture of it, you know. Yeah, I really agree with that. Yeah, I definitely do. And, and you know, as it, as it applies to me, um, as, you know, when, when it came 
when it came to the point of me choosing whether to stay on the stage or, or go behind the mic, you know, I, I really had to deal with the idea that, wow, if, if I let go my seat uh, with this orchestra, I was playing with the Knoxville Symphony, black people coming to this show will see zero black folks on this stage. But, but you know, conversations like these, you know, are just deserve so much more attention and, and I don't think they've been in the limelight in classical music culture and I just felt like my personal charge was um, was so much bigger so I, I really again I really appreciate you um, opening up these ideas and um, and exposing these thoughts to people who you know may not be thinking about them otherwise hey well thank you I, I, I never really thought about what that meant for you to leave the orchestra to be the last black person in the orchestra that that's a very, very difficult position to be in. Even right. thinking about it personally, I'm thinking, wow, like, what role am I serving and what could my bigger role be, but what, what are the implications of me leaving right now? Right, but then right. that kind of leads to thinking like, well, this is so much bigger than me right now. It Playing the long the game, game, exactly. Right. Wow, um, that's, that's the, a difficult position. The, the, the very first um, person I interviewed um, for this podcast, uh, shout out to Marion Dooley, uh, he reached out to me, um, and if for folks who've already uh, listened to that episode, they know, but he reached out to me because um, I subbed with the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, first time uh, in Minnesota. He saw me on stage, and, th and that was just um, such a big moment for him. So, um, you know, we've become homies, and we talk. And uh, one, of the, um, one of the things we talked about in his episode of uh, Triloquy um, is the idea of access to um, options. He went to an HBCU down in Oklahoma and he was talking about how, um, you know, while his marching band experience and all that was so rich and so full, he just didn't really have a picture um, from that institution of what some of the next steps uh, could be. And, um, and that's one of the things that breaks my heart about um, our HBCUs. But, you know, at the same time, it kind of seems like that applies to um, the, the more traditional conservatory culture. I mean, what, what options are laid before you at NEC that uh, really give you a clearer picture of what a career outside of um, the orchestral hall or, or, the, or, the, uh, or the teaching uh, facility could be? Do you, do you think that is set up at, at your school? Not, not to say anything about NEC, of course, but... Mm -hmm. Not entirely. Um, a lot of the... Well, I mean, firstly, I'll, I'll say I think one of the biggest things about conservatory culture is that um, they have this retention rate of, of graduates, you know, where people are coming back to the school and coming back to the school because they don't really have something figured out yet. You know, mm -hmm. there's an understanding that people kind of go to school until they get a job. And I think speaking to NEC, because I mean, I go there, like, there are a lot of people who go for four years, come back for the master's, go two years, come back for a graduate diploma or artist diploma or things like that. There isn't totally, um, there's not really a system in place that allows for career planning. Um, at least something that's significant enough. They have this department called the Entrepreneurial Musicianship Department. And I think it's a great start, and I think it's a great initiative. Um, there's a required class in which they teach us about, they teach us briefly about like marketing and, and like business options and teach us about grants and things like that. But I don't think there's 
any sort of curriculum or any sort of program at NEC that helps us with career planning. You know, that, that's definitely one of the, the biggest pitfalls I found in, in a conservatory. So, so once, so once you, so, so let's fast forward. Let's say twenty. You're twenty years old now. So when you're forty years old, and you know you are, you're just in the thick of your career, and you know things are going great. Everything is really successful. Uh, what would be your charge to both? HBCUs, state schools, even conservatories. What what would be your charge to them as far as helping uh, young musicians uh, navigate more diverse careers in classical music? I think the first thing. I think one of the biggest things um, I would recommend would uh, be adapting um, their own version of a co-op program. You know. Uh, Northeastern University, one of the one of the big, best things about their school is that a lot of their years, a lot of their degrees are five-year degrees in which four years mm-hmm. of schooling and you have uh, a, 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 an additional year in which you're in the workforce. You know, you're actually out there doing something within the workforce. I think the conservatory can do a great job because I think right now the conservatory does a great job at controlling the pace and controlling um, the kind of, you know, look of the musician, music, like the world musicians, you know. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is that conservatories are great at controlling the job market. I think. I think what they could do is, I think conservatories could create more jobs for um, musicians, uh, and within doing so, will create jobs for people to um, facilitate like these new venues and these new performance opportunities. But I also think there are new jobs that can be created that are more like niche, that are more specific. That's not just simply performance, but integrates performance into a different type of artistic medium. Um, I think things are too kind of black and white. I think it's too too much so like, okay, just go and perform. Okay, now just do education. There are there's definitely a lot of middle ground there. I think the biggest thing that conservatories can do, or maybe HBCUs can do, um, when it comes to the, lying lying out uh, some sort of career path, is um, introducing. Um, co-op programs you know one of the biggest things i learned from lacolian uh since i've been his mentee the last couple months is that you have to fail and you have to fail fast you know um but in order to fail fast or fail you have to try something you know so i think for these new opportunities i think creating new opportunities um within like a co-op program uh for you know these different schools would allow people to actually get out there and say wow i don't like this at all it's a good thing yeah. I tried it within this safe space because there's a certain amount of there's a lot of cushion that comes along with being an institution. You know, you can try things and fail things. You fail and crash and burn, but with padding. You know, um, that's one of the biggest things. People kind of get out of college and it, there's a long time. There's a good amount of time before they feel like before they re, kind of actualize themselves and figure out what they like, what they don't like, where they're going. You know, and I think <laughs> schools can facilitate that a little bit. Yeah, and, and when you mention that padding, you know, that's that's something that, that can't be uh, overlooked enough. I was, one of the things I attribute my success as far as um, getting into orchestras is that I didn't have that safety net. You know, I, I had to I had to win an audition or I or I had to starve, you know, and, and, and that that padding, that safety net is so important. And of course, we could get into a conversation about, you know, who, um, what students actually do have that padding and, and the relationship uh, between generational wealth and, and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so important. All right, well, David, this has really been great. For, for anyone who wants to um, reach out to you or learn more about you, how can they do that? 
Um, so at this point in time, the best way to reach out to me would be um, through email or, or actually through Instagram. So my email is davidnorville.obo at gmail.com. Um, and my Instagram is at madcooldave. Um, I have a podcast in the works of production. It's in pre-production right now. Um, and I mean, there's going to be more information about that soon. But I actually have to wait literally until tomorrow to figure out what the next step is for that. Because um, through this fellowship, I'll be able to produce the podcast. It'll be in front of a live studio audience. Um, and hope, looking at five episodes within the next year or so. Um, Excellent. 2020. Um, well, tomorrow, yeah. when, when, whenever uh, you get the information you need, um, be sure to send that to me. And by the time um, this episode of, of Triloquy airs, um, I'll be able to uh, do all of those shout outs for your project and post. Okay, we'll do. Definitely we'll do that. All right, well, David, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Garrett, thanks for having me. It was a really great time, great experience. David Norville in conversation with Garrett McQueen here on Triloquy. David definitely hit on some things that I want to touch on again. But uh, just as an update, um, he he told me uh, last week that he received not one but two fellowships, one from the National Art Strategies and the second from the Creative Community Fellows of New England. And what he plans to do with uh, the money from those two fellowships is to begin the project. Uh, you heard him talk a little bit about, um, he's calling the project AIM, A-I-M. It stands for Artists Initiative Movement, a uh, podcast series that um, he's working on, I believe still in production. Um, but we're definitely going to be hearing more from David Norville, such a brilliant mind and such an innovative mind for such a, young person i definitely wasn't engaged in the conversations that he's ready to engage when i was 20 how, how about you <laughs> well first off i have to say that you know listening back to you and i going uh, uh talking about things in this podcast i listen to myself and i go man i say uh and um a lot and it and it it doesn't sound good to my ear okay and then i hear you two talk and everything that he said sounded fully formed yeah and you know well thought out and everything. So immediately I'm thinking that this guy's like 30 years old. Right. And right. to hear that he's 20, I was like, the kids are all right. The kids are all right. And it's going to be fine with, with people like him. He will be a mentor to many, many people. Now, and you can also be inspired by, you know, anyone can be inspired by anyone. So I, I was inspired by David. I'm curious. I'm curious what you think. You know, you, you say the kids are okay. The next generation is going to make it. Well, he, you know, I don't think he's going to end up on the on the orchestral stage. Do you think the true talent is moving away from classical music? I don't know. I think that um, I don't see why he couldn't be an influence from the stage. You know, that he sounds like he's got so many irons in the fire now. Right. That doing more of that and having more, uh, even more irons going into the fire, I don't think, it doesn't sound like that's going to hinder him. Yeah. He will find another hour in the day somehow. And he talks about all these issues that we have in this podcast. You know, like we're talking about uh, access you yeah. know, from very early on, just listening to Lee Koontz, making a way where there is no way. Yeah. You know, so all of these things are uh, reverberating over and over and over again. What did you think about <laughs> what did you think about what he said uh, concerning classical music as like the last bastion of white supremacy or whatever? Shots whatever. fired. <laughs> Shots fired. So when I when I interviewed him, I actually uh, 
that was one of my big takeaways and I put it on my on my Facebook that I had interviewed someone who said that and boy people were really fired up about that and you know I just think that's a very poignant thing again for such a young person to say and when you think about it he's not too far off the mark at least you know from 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 my perspective no and I think that that's the important thing to remember is that we need to listen to these other perspectives because not only not only will it if you have an appreciation for somebody else's plight i think it improves your own right right at least i hope yeah i would hope so yeah shout out to david norville um that kid's going places, i, I man. can't wait to uh, meet him in person i've i'm so glad again that um Lacolian, my my first teacher um you know, connected the two of us, and I'm I'm looking I'm looking forward to um, to seeing the incredible growth that uh, I'm sure Mr. David Norville is gonna um, is gonna be uh, enjoying over the next few years. Just one last thing, uh, a quote from him I wrote down is, "I know myself, and I know what I want for my world." Isn't that a beautiful sort of concept? Just knowing what you want your world to look like. Um, in the course of this interview, David laid out all sorts of sentences that could go on a t-shirt yeah, or your bumper sticker or something like that. For me, um, if there's someone who can do it, it's you, David. Yeah. You know, when he said that somebody told him, well, David, I'm going to, I'm going to echo that back to you. I think that, I think that everything is open to you. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, um, so next time we're going to hear from an arts administrator. Do you know anything about arts administration or what that entails? Just what I do at my cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, her name is Kwanis Floyd. She um, she does a lot of different things, uh, including running the um Artists, the Arts Administrators of Color Network. Um, so uh, in our chat, we talk a lot about, um, you know, uh, the the indigenous music and the indigenous culture that uh, we overlook far too often, as well as uh, teaching uh, kids music and how music education should, should mirror culture, and then how um, all of those concepts play into the work she does um, as an arts administrator. So you'll definitely want to um, check out Kwanis Floyd next time on Triloquy. And before we let you go, I'd like to announce that our website is live. You can catch up on past opuses of Triloquy and keep up with the new ones by visiting triloquy.org. That's T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y dot O-R-G.